Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is John Stewart, who joins me to discuss his book, Lennon, Dylan, Marx and God. John Stewart is the guitarist for Britpop band Sleeper, who started teaching modules on popular music at the British and Irish Music Institute in Brighton. John's book is a dual biography of Lennon and Dylan, and in it he discusses their relationship, their politics, their understanding of history, and their deeply held spiritual beliefs. At times they were so in sync, and at others they were poles apart. John assesses the impact they had on each other right up until Lennon's death in 1980. John Stewart, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. We're here to talk about uh, Dylan, Lennon, Marx and God, uh, four titanic figures. Where did the idea for the book come from? Well, I I wanted to do a doctorate for a long time. I ended up doing a thing on protest music. The first bit of published research I did was where's all the protest music gone? And it related to the Iraq war. I just couldn't believe the Iraq war had happened and and a million people have marched in London and New York and all around the world. Biggest anti-war protest in history, uh, overtaking the one in the moratorium against the war in 1969, where they all sung Give Peace a Chance outside the White House. So I, I was fascinated by the fact the Iraq war had, had happened and there hadn't been a whole lot of protest music against it. So I kind of went in search of that and thought that uh, that got published in a, a book. Uh, the, the reason is there, was, there wasn't conscription. That's why there wasn't anti-war protest music. That's what I concluded anyway. And it had all gone online. And there was some really good stuff, by, like Neil Young and the Beastie Boys and lots of cool people. That formed the basis for the third chapter of the book, because then I kind of investigated 60s protest singers as a, as a more of a general... PhD and in the end it was such a broad subject I just thought who are your two favorite songwriters or the ones that influenced you most as a kid and it was Bob Dylan and John Lennon so I just I couldn't really get past them so instead it turned into uh, a dual someone suggested a dual biography which is where you kind of look at two people and and the basic idea is that for a dual biography to be valid what essentially would happen is the, the the comparison of the two adds up to kind of greater than the sum of its parts. So you learn more about them as individuals because you studied them together. And I thought, in that sense, George Harrison and Bob Dylan would be the ideal dual biography in terms of people who knew each other and were friends and what have you. But loads of that would be fairly impenetrable. You'd never get hold of the minutiae of what happened. Whereas with Lennon and Dylan their relationship was sufficiently public to be able to track and trace, to coin a phrase, most of it. Most of their meetings are recorded in some way or another. So at that point, it, I was able to kind of, and I just thought they're the most influential songwriters in the 20th century in pop field, really. It's difficult. I mean, obviously, there's a few, if you're a muso, like sort of people I work with, no, no insult intended. Um, you know, you've got your Burt Bacharachs and stuff that people would say, well, they're the most influential people in terms of the musicology. But in terms of popular influence, it's clearly Dylan and Lennon. And um, and then I just thought, what? how am I going to explore this? So there's a, their, their, their lives, how they intertwined. That was the first part, which was in itself pretty interesting. And then the second part looks at their politics. And I thought, what's relevant? Because so, you could look at the civil rights movement and obviously... Dylan wrote loads about the civil rights movement, whereas Lennon, well, his 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 engagements there was quite clumsy on the album Sometime in New York City, a song title I couldn't even say now. If you think about our right, international geopolitics in the 1960s, the peace movement, not just Vietnam, but the sort of the anti-military industrial complex um, movement that was happening. So it's not just anti-war, it's general peace songs. And Lennon's kind of start, I, I feel, with the word, actually, which is a sort of code for love because the word is love and obviously and later in his career and dylan began as a really intense anti-protest song or including lots of anti-war stuff so you compare you can compare their view of single issue anti-war geopolitics in the 60s and then the next part looks at them in history so broadening out from that what's their view of the past and how are they affected by their heritage and their very different backgrounds in the Midwest and in Liverpool, and then broadening out further from the 
human history of the 18th century to the entire existence of human history and evolutionary psychology and their faith and what current explanations we have for faith and belief. So it goes from kind of their relationship to a single issue that they wrote about to their broader perspective on, on the past and then to their kind of existential uh, outlook on life itself and their beliefs in the context of the entire evolution of humanity. So the, the book starts with a look at the, the kind of bare bones of their relationship, John and, and Bob. And uh, I think it's one of the most fascinating 60s friendships or, or almost friendships of all, you know, there was so much cross-pollination going mm. on. So let's talk a little bit about, about their relationship. How would you characterise their relationship? Do you think there was a, an actual friendship there? Yeah, I think there was a kind of, um, I guess, a friendly rivalry. I looked at some academic work on it, and there'd been quite a few studies on the Beatles in terms of, in terms of their uh, their relationship to Dylan as two two really important artists that were kind of dancing around the same field and competing with each other in a certain way, much like there is in the Beatles and their relationship to the Beach Boys. There's been quite a lot of study around that now, and there's very various different ways of thinking about it. But I suppose the way I kind of concluded it was it was they both endorsed each other out of mutual approbation really so it was kind of a respectful rivalry and um that's that's based on the scholar called Ian Inglis's work who looked at Dylan and the Beatles and and characterized that and then I carried it on after the Beatles and essentially traced their relationship with the 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 10 or 11 times they met the one time they didn't write a song together which turned into a song because it was fictionalised by David Shipper uh, in his book on the Beatles, which I'm sure you've got, paperback writer, fictional account of the Beatles, in which in which Lennon and McCartney and Dylan write a song together called Pneumonia Ceilings. So the more logical connection, Harrison and Dylan, it's less fascinating than the more, I want to say, biblical connection, Dylan and Lennon. It's like... Because they're both such huge figures. It's that kind of spark, isn't it? Where the possibility that they might have written a song together is so enticing. We want to believe it so much that even, even Michael Gray, possibly the most respected Dylan scholar on the planet, who wrote the authoritative Bob Dylan encyclopedia, somehow put that in as a fact, even though it was fiction. Uh, this song pneumonia ceilings that apparent that, that they wrote together in a fictional story we want to believe it so much it's now factually represented in the most authoritative book on bob dylan which i just love that i love that their relationship meant so much to, more to other people possibly even than it did to themselves i think so they they never recorded together although there were two stu- two occasions they were in they were in a position to do that no one's ever really documented their meetings before. So that's the first piece of big original research. And I go through and lay them out. And there's the time Dylan allegedly introduced the Beatles to cannabis, which is nonsense because, yes, they had a joint. But in fact, they'd all had cannabis before anyway. Dylan, Lennon, certainly since 1960. Lennon was shown how to get, get Benzedrine out of a Vicks inhaler by band he was playing another band he was playing with in the 60s in 1960 there's no question that they took loads of speed and and smoked cannabis in in hamburg so they're all very familiar with drugs but there's this legend around dylan introducing the band to cannabis and then their creative influence so lennon really didn't care about lyrics he's quoted very strongly as and the all the people around him were like it was just the sound of the words that mattered and then he listens to Dylan's music and he's like, wow, you could actually say something with this. And, and But he can't put it in the songs. It goes in his books. It goes in, in his own right, and, and that, which is full of coruscating social commentary. But the songs still remain early Beatles songs, apart from the ones where he can lever in this slightly coded message, such as the word, and the word is love, and the word love is be nice to each other and stop having wars and stuff and then that that gradually grows into tomorrow never knows which is you know an intensely spiritual song disguised as a drug trip so lennon starts doing message songs and he's so influenced by dylan that dylan actually writes a song about how influenced dylan lennon is by dylan fourth time around because if they were just mates 
mm. it would be just much more compliment. It would just be Harrison and Dylan. Mm. Boring, you know. And then they form the Travelling Wilburys. Like, who wants to read that? This is much more... It's a it's a knuckle grinder, isn't it? It's two people that love each other's work and and are both massive egos and come from very different backgrounds and kind of relate and kind of don't. So there's the the influence between them. I mean, they both wore each other's clothes. Let, Lennon wore the Dylan cap. Dylan, no one really mentions Dylan. Bought his first pair of Beetle boots in sixty four, sixty five, and never stopped wearing them until he had a mo- maybe that's why he had a motorbike crash because he was wearing Cuban heels. And Dylan started doing started a band when he heard the Beatles because he'd always been a rock and Dylan fans hate that. Two, the two things Dylan fans hate being pointed out is and but there's a lot we get wrong about Dylan, I believe. Mm. But the two the two things that, that are most difficult to argue on on the Dylan fan Facebook pages are he's actually quite conservative uh, politically. I think. I mean, he's just saying his memoir. His favorite sixties politician was Barry Goldwater. And he was hugely influenced by Lennon musically. So he'd always been a rocker. He does this folk thing. He finds out he's brilliant at it. He changes the world. And then, and then the Beatles come on along and he's like, oh, that's what I wanted. I want, I want a band. And then he just reinvents the band when now he realizes the possibilities. Even records quite a lot of Beatles influenced songs in 64, 65, including at one point a jammed version of, of, um, well, he, he references Beatles lyrics in his music and jams a couple of Beatles tunes in the 60s in the recording studio. And then there's the two times they were together when their egos got in the way of them doing anything, which is when Lennon was recording Cold Turkey. Uh, Harrison brought Dylan to, to Tittenhurst. Lennon invited him to play on it and he made some excuse and went. And then Lennon took Dylan down to the studio in New York where he's recording David Peel who was part of the Dylan Liberation Front, which Lennon was also involved in, and played him the Ballad of Bob Dylan, which is a massively insulting song about how Bob Dylan's too scared to do protest music anymore, and, and Dylan walks out, which is which has only ever been documented in one or two books. And I actually spoke to David Peel before he died. Now, he's not a massively reliable narrator, and I've got the emails to prove it, but he was like, yeah, oh, yeah, that happened, and he just sort of described it all. So... Um, this sort of slightly contentious relationship where you're just not quite sure what's going to happen between them. And if they'd have got together, how would it work? Would it not? Who knows? Whereas with Harrison, it was always going to be much more, much more malleable and it was going to work, you know, and then you got the predictable result being traveling world booze, which is great, but never going to set the world on fire. Yeah. So I just, I just think there's a spark between those two and a legend around them. And they were huge influences on each other, whether we like it or not. And whether they like it or not, I don't think they, could, they couldn't but respond to what each other was doing. And there's so many interesting parallels and comparisons between, between the way that happened that um, the deeper I dug, the more interesting it got, I suppose. What do you make of the, am I right in saying the only film footage of them together, the somewhat chaotic dawn ride through London that was supposedly part of the Eat the Document film in 1966. Yes. Without thinking about it in advance, that watching that does kind of make the argument I'm trying to make, which is that when they got together, they, they, it were two huge egos, egos in the room. That's always going to be difficult. And, and I've been in that situation where you're working with, with people who are so well-known and so they've been so successful, no one can ever say no to them you just go with the idea and try and make it work and I think that's who Dylan and Lennon were so then when they meet they're trying to tee each other up comedically but it doesn't quite work because obviously Dylan's very 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 drunk and they've both been up all night doing who knows what so they're too tired to make it work but there's also that sense of preservation of ego that happens I think when you're in that situation all you're thinking is how's this going to look and what you know where's it going which is clearly what Lennon's uptight about. And they're both uptight about what the impression they're making on each other. And they don't want to say anything too dumb, which means nothing funny can happen because comedy's all about saying stupid things, isn't it? And confounding expectations. And it's just not quite there to make that happen. And it's more of a sort of dr- two kind of drunk people trying to make it work and then it, and, and it not happening. And Dylan asking how long, is this a 10 minute reel or whatever? And, it's just so the production starts clearly fearing in what's happening. And um, 
I think it tells quite a lot in a way of the story in the fact that it didn't work because it was two people rubbing up against each other who kind of really ought to have got on, but circumstances get in the way. I mean, I, I think they had a mutual respect. I mean, apparently it's in the book, so it's referenced to everything in the book is referenced, but Dylan went to see Yoko after John's assassination. So there must have been a huge amount of mutual respect. And, and obviously a lot of Dylan fans quite quarrelsome if you mention that the influence of Lennon and the Beatles on because the Dylan fans a lot of Dylan fans have still haven't got over him going electric the fact that he went to Lennon's house yeah on a public tour could have booked a private one went with everybody else no one realized until halfway around who weird old American in the hoodie he was and then he got off before McCartney's house which is <laughs> I mean maybe he had a sound check to go to I don't know but that says it all in a way I think as well so there's lots of like maybe i'm just looking for things i didn't know anything about that yoko visit until your book i mean i know there's there's not a huge amount of detail there because i mean that but that's a fascinating conversation that's uh, i can't imagine what but obviously he felt impelled to go there it's it's only a few days after isn't it or like the next day or something i can't remember the date okay yeah it's referenced that everything because it's an academic work you know there's brackets at every end of every paragraph with the sources for everything so you mentioned that he didn't go to mccartney's house Mm. but where does paul fit into into this he has been very complimentary about mccartney in in various different interviews Mm. Um, they both they both have and they've both been a little bit just so that around about that time was when they were talking about working together yeah or the media was talking about them working together and they both said some complimentary things about each other and then I think McCartney said well obviously I worked with John so I don't you know I've worked with the best and and that was it I was like okay fair enough and then it fizzled out and that's that was just at the point where he was visiting the houses and didn't go to McCartney's, which if, if, as everybody knows, who's been the McCartney house is actually really interesting to visit. The fact that he got off before the McCartney house when that's ironically, there's so much to learn from that building. It's such a fascinating place to see. Again, it's, it's the ego thing, isn't it? Cause I suppose you've got two lead singers in the Beatles, which is why the band was so powerful and a third in, in Harrison too. But, I guess that's that sort of ego rubbing up against each other. And in a way, the the Dylan McCartney link up, I argue in the book, musically, would probably have been the most interesting of all because yeah. lots of critics, even in the 60s, were comparing Dylan and Lennon in terms of their cynicism and the, the, the Ian McDonald book, Revolution in the Head. That makes a fantastic comparison about McCartney's kind of sing-song, uh, up-and-down vertical melodies the the large intervals in when i'm 64 and the jumpy melodies and then lennon's straight cynical one note julia just one note and dylan would be the one figure who could clearly replicate that kind of style when you think about his his style so that if that's what made the beatles so enticing then musically a, a dylan mccartney collab would be outstanding and, I mean, well, then the proof of that is obviously uh, the McCartney-Michael Jackson collaboration, which was just like sugar on top of sugar, wasn't it? Whereas the McCartney-Dylan one, that, that would have been... And imagine the royalties, imagine the money they'd make. But no, for some reason it didn't happen. What a shame. It wouldn't even need to be that good. Everyone would buy it. Well, there's still time, but the mm. uh, the clock is ticking on that one. I think, yeah, well, exactly. They need to get on with it. We need to start a movement. Talking of movements and, and protest, uh, there's a, 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 as you mentioned, a big part of the book is on both their kind of protest songs. Something that I picked up was the fact that Dylan's work in that area is early 60s, Lennon is late 60s into the early 70s. What do you think drew them to this kind of protest work, I suppose you'd say, at, at those respective different points in their lives? Yeah, I use... Um... He's a very important American Marxist sociologist called R. Serge Denisov, and he founded some of the, the earliest popular music scholarship journals and groups. And he looked at protest music as this kind of, he categorised it as, as uh, old school union folk songs that identify a problem and a solution, you know, and then more esoteric 60s songs that basically identify a problem but don't really 
share a solution, which is kind of the influence of drugs or just a sort of more liberal mindset of the 60s in that it's more about the me decade and working out what's wrong without really suggesting solutions. And um, Dylan started off very much influenced by that traditional American folk music movement, which was problem solution, old school folk songs, and then swerved very quickly after only about a year into more abstract protest songs and abandoned very publicly formulaic protest songs very, very quickly, very publicly, indeed in song, in his own songs that he wrote about why he was doing that. So he took that journey from protest to abstract and stuff like Highway 61 or Tombstone Blues were were pretty intense anti-Vietnam war songs, but you'd have to decode the lyrics to work that out. Lennon's the lead singer of the biggest boy band in history. His political songs are songs like The Word or Tomorrow Never Knows or then All You Need Is Love, which is essentially a peace song at the height of the, the Vietnam War. When you think, when you decode it, it's quite clear what that message is. And he goes the other way. So he goes from these abstract songs to Give Peace a Chance, which is one of the last great traditional folk songs, anti-war folk songs of the 20th century, or Happy Christmas, War is Over, and then into an entire album of traditional problem-solution folk songs, uh, folk-influenced protest songs sometime in New York City, which was his follow-up to Imagine. At that point, he must have thought he was ready to take over the world, so he finally goes full protest, old-school problem solution protest and it absolutely dies a death because it's too didactic and and everyone hates it so they both take this completely reverse journey they're a mirror image of each other in that sense dylan goes from traditional protest to this sort of abstract stuff to it gradually evaporating almost entirely out of his work although not completely and for lennon it's the opposite he starts with with no political content in his music that's reserved purely for his books and then it gradually seeps in through through more abstract titles like all you need is love and then you know he ends up writing i don't want to be a soldier mama and all that kind of stuff and imagine which is an intensely political song he you know the reason why dylan abandoned protest music was because he realized he was going to get shot if he didn't i mean his band members were leaving and saying you know i can't stand next to you on stage bob it's too too risky meanwhile uh, Lennon's just going, I guess that's the naivety. of That's one of the things that separates them. They're both supposed to be cynics, but um, I think Lennon was quite naive about America in many ways. And um, that's obviously ultimately why it cost him his life in the end. And very early on, you probably know about, the, um, fire, I'm sure most of the listeners know about the firecracker incident in Memphis, which is often, that's another thing. When you hear the firecracker incident, which is now on YouTube, you understand why they stopped touring. It wasn't the Philippines. It wasn't the fact they couldn't reproduce the harmonies. It, they were on stage in Memphis. Someone threw a very, very loud firecracker and they all turned around expecting John to fall over. Everybody on stage, the entire Beatles touring party of, I would imagine, five, six people, <laughs> including the band, so not that many. But everybody on stage was like, oh, that's John gone. So, yeah, that, and, that, and that was because because at the time because of his anti-religious comments but he was also in those interviews speaking out stridently against the war in vietnam and making himself doubly vulnerable and he apologized for the religious comment we're bigger than jesus but he never apologized for his anti-vietnam war comments which was incredibly brave so you mentioned there that the failure of some time in new york city commercially and critically i listened to it now and then and i I can't personally get a lot, a lot from it. You know, an album like Sometime in New City in, you know, 2022 doesn't sound great. And he, he never really goes back to it in the remainder of his, of his solo career, really. And essentially, by the time we get to Double Fantasy, one of the criticisms of Double Fantasy by mainly English writers that rhyme for sounds and Merlin Maker was that yeah. it's, it, it's this very cosy domestic picture, a world away from, the kind of songs he was writing in, in the early 70s. Do you think that was, do you think the commercial failure of that, of Sometime in New York City, was the reason why he never went back to protest music? Or do you think he it just didn't interest him by that point? I, well, I think he kind of had to. The, I think the weird thing about being an artist is that is that you never know 
I think he was sure it was going to be a massive success. And as a result, he really pushed the boat out and he really cared about it. And he, for, for a solo album, it sounds pretty good. He got a great backing band in. And for his work, it, sonically, it's, it's pretty solid in many ways. Obviously, you can never second guess why anybody makes a decision, but yeah. that must have had a huge impact. He couldn't get it on the radio because of the because of the title of the biggest the, the lead single, which was essentially the follow up to Imagine, which is still one of the biggest pop songs ever written. You know, still sung at Olympics. You can't have an Olympics opening ceremony without <laughs> Imagine, and every New Year's Eve immediately before the ball drop in in, in Times Square for the last twenty years. That is a massive song and. And he genuinely thought that the, that the lead single off his next album would do the same. And so that, I think that rocks you a bit when that, that doesn't happen. And uh, you start to realise that you're not invincible. For the follow-up Mind Games, he did have quite a lot of political material already written and he changed the lyrics to it. So Mind Games, the early versions are Make Love Not War, not Mind Games, which is a great follow-up. If you've written Imagine and then you just had all, all the hits off, off your imaginary hit record sometime in New York City and your next album's Make Love Not War and it's 1973 and the Vietnam War's coming to a close and the Americans have been forced to do a peace deal and all that stuff, that's the sliding doors trajectory that, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, then it, and, and then he changes it to Mind Games and splits up with Yoko and, and takes a different course and, and then his life does become that... Same journey in Dylan, really. It becomes introspective and the protest is there, but but hidden. I mean, there is, there's one song on the Mind Games album, Bring On, Bring on the Lucy or whatever it's called, Free to People. So I, I guess it would have been more of that. So, and that's a great tune. What an under, underrated Lennon song that is. And possibly because it's on the follow-up to an album that, that was largely reviled, even you know, worse than being ignored, I suppose. Then the consequences that a track like that gets locked over it's such a great tune so another part of the book that i i really enjoyed was the section on john's relationship with history and you it's a really interesting easy to digest which is good for me table in the book where you list all of john's references to historical figures both in these songs and in his poems clearly he was interested he had a relationship with history where did this come from? Do you think that his history and the history of Britain and the history of the world was really important to John? Yeah, no question. And I think that's one of the things that makes him and Dylan compare as great songwriters. I haven't done it with any other artist, but I think if you were to list the number of historical figures referenced in their lyrics, you wouldn't get close to those kind of tables that I can, you can produce on Dylan and Lennon. I mean, the mess, I mean, I had to stop with Dylan. I don't even do his whole career. But they both make copious references to people from the near and also classical history in the distant past. And I think that's because they were both very well read, which is as someone who teaches popular music, something I've always tried to get students to, which is genuinely to read not just about the people that they like, but the people that they like, like, if that makes sense, their influences mm-hmm. on their influences and the context of it and where it all comes from. They're both so w- widely read that uh, it really shows in their, in their songwriting and they, they bring on different historical, historical approaches. Lennon uh, is mired in that sort of post-war Liverpool after the, I mean, he, that family legend about him being born during the night of the Liverpool Blitz, which probably isn't true. Although there are lots of interesting historical ironies in his family story. He, so he marched in London famously with an IRA front cover of a magazine arguing for the IRA, Red Mole magazine. And um, his mum, when she was young, was in an IRA explosion during the Second World War because not many people know that the IRA were ran a massive bombing campaign in, in mainland England during the Second World War because they saw it as an opportunity to destabilise the country and, and regain the or gain the six counties. I, I wonder if he ever even knew that. I wonder if he ever even put those two together. That would be interesting. The thing I think we forget about Lennon's relationship with history is that he grew up and went to school in the 50s and there were people teaching him at that time who would have grown up and gone to school at the end of the Victorian era and certainly in the Edwardian era. And that is now so long ago that it's become proper old, old history. But, but for someone like 
John Lennon, that was living history. So the the things that are present throughout his songs are that kind of what was to him the recent past of the, of the Victorian era, of the, the, the British Empire. It's an interesting thing to discuss because we're living at a time when decolonizing the curriculum is is high on the agenda of academic institutions and we're bringing down statues that because of the what they represent whereas to someone like John Lennon those would have been very meaningful and I wonder where he would have stood on a lot of that I wonder if in a way he would have been think about the Sex Pistols and Johnny Rotten the Brexiteer would would Lennon have been a like that about so much of the Victorian history that he grew up around and so clearly loved and um, critiqued, but in a kind of a, a knowing way. So, yeah, I think I think he has a, a very particular view of it. And mo- what's most important is he's capable of articulating it very clearly and both in, a, in the text of his lyrics and in the subtext in the lyrics and also in the form of the music which something like for the benefit of mr kite sounds like a steam engine fair organ from the 19th century and the the lyrics are based on a poster that's that is not only about a fair it's about a fair run by the first black circus owner in the united kingdom pablo Banke, I don't even know how you pronounce that, who was a huge figure at the time, who was a very well-known benefactor, who basically ran regular events, charity events, who was best known for the charity events that, that he ran in cities all across the north. He was a sort of a one, one-man live aid for various good causes. And one of those was this retiring horse performer who was moving on from the circus. Uh, not sure why, perhaps he'd been injured, but certainly there was no pension, there was no social security benefits for someone who was doing a very dangerous job with, I'm sure, a high incident of injury. And so this is what the benefits for Mr. Kite, who's moving on and uh, all had to stop. So it's a worker's benefit. There's an element of his working class interest in that, even though that's buried. And what's even further buried is is his relationship to empire because the reason why horse performances were so popular in the circus and had become a tradition in the british circle circus that's that's largely forgotten now was because at the end of the i think it was the hundred years war 60 years earlier hundreds and hundreds of cavalrymen had returned to the united kingdom with all these amazing horse skills and nothing to do so they all joined circuses it, it's absolutely embedded in all his work he, you, you scratch the surface of, of any john lennon sort of late period beatles song and somewhere you'll find this this connection to what it meant to be british at the end of the at the end of the empire in his music because he's so culturally aware of it and it's fascinating because i think some of it's there consciously and then some of it like the various elements of Mr. Kite, a lot of that's in, in the subconscious or even unconscious, just appearing in there because of the context of how he's writing. In the the interview that uh, John does with Andy Peebles uh, for the BBC Radio 1, two days before he's killed, Andy Peebles says to him, when are you going to come back? Make some reference to the fact that he's obviously not been to the UK in, in nine years. And then and John says, well, to quote Churchill... It's an Englishman's inalienable right to live wherever the hell he wants. And I can't think of many other, despite the, the public school education of people like Jagger and Townsend, if they'd been asked that question, I can't see them quoting Churchill. No. Um, and he had all Churchill's books at home. That's why he read all his stuff. Moving on from, from history, as you referenced at the start there, you talk a lot about, I suppose, spirituality, if that's not too kind of glib a, a term. I think it's really interesting to look at what, that meant for John and for, for Dylan as well. John obviously had this dalliance like the other Beatles with the Maharishi in 1968, which ended, as far as we know, not with a huge amount of affection uh, that mm-hmm. John had for, for Maharishi and didn't ever, as far as we know, I don't think they ever um, reconnected through, through the 70s. How genuine do you think John's interest in, in the Maharishi and in spirituality was? So I, um, I think the interesting thing about both him and Dylan 
which is not the case with with Harrison, interestingly, is that both profess this very strong atheism during the 60s. When it was not really fashionable to do so, it could be if you weren't a pop star, pretty much any other profession, that would be a career ending interview to say that. And then both went through periods of difficulty. So I try and examine Dylan and Lennon's approach to religion from that perspective as two people who were once strong atheists, seven probably on the Dawkins scale, or maybe six, and then went through various periods of crises and ego deflation and and found a pretty profound faith in one form or another of supernatural belief. Now, Lennon obviously was very strongly against organised religion, but there are plenty of things that he got involved in and he kind of bounced from one to the other. So there's the Maharishi. He did a lot, uh, actually initially even more than George Harrison did to help the Hare Krishnas get established in the United Kingdom. And then there was the um, the therapy movements he got involved with, like Yanov's Primal Scream. And even later in life, the, the George O'Shawa's bizarre macrobiotic diet movement. Dylan runs into a a wall around about 78 and has a born again Christian experience and joins a vineyard fellowship. That's his journey. Lennon, the wall he hits, I would argue is, is, is actually when he's five and his dad goes, and that's a psychological thing inside him. That means his whole life is yearning for a father figure. And it starts with the Beatles management <laughs> probably i think that was a big part of the development of the band finding someone he could trust and and build a relationship with to make the band happen in brian epstein and then it moves on to the production team george martin and he's looking for someone to help him what well, we all need a father figure it's i argue it's an evolutionary thing it, which is slightly controversial his relationship with his missing father figure whether it's his biological father who goes to sea or his stepfather who dies when he's 11, George Smith, I think it was, who he had a good relationship with. From that point, he just needs guidance and it doesn't happen. Uh, and he just bounces from Epstein to Martin to the Maharishi to Yanov to the International Marxist Group uh, and Karl Marx and the, and the Fourth International uh, initially via Tarakali and and then off to the revolution, various revolutionaries in the United States and possibly even Dylan himself. I think he's looking for he's looking for guidance, never quite finds it, and then it eventually arrives in the form of Yoko, who obviously calls mother throughout his life, semi-ironically. You can never say whether or not somebody truly believes in something because you can't be in their head. There's a fantastic paper, American research paper, called from Wimsat and Beardsley about the authorial paradox, which basically says you never really know what an author means. It's very difficult to actually get to the heart of what someone's intent is, the paradox of authorial intent. So was Hamlet in love with his mother? Well, we'll never really know. We just interpret it. He certainly behaved as if he believed it, and he threw everything into it. And then he found out, for one reason or other, that, that there was an issue with it, and he bounced on to the next thing, which he threw himself into full-heartedly, whether it was revolutionary politics or primal screen therapy. I mean, I don't believe anyone could listen to Mother and think in any way that John Lennon did not wholeheartedly believe in primal screen therapy at the time he made that record. That, that's just inconceivable to me that in any way he, he wasn't 100% into that. I'm sure he did believe it because we have a... He was caught on all sides, wasn't he? We have, we have a desire for explanation because of our complex thinking, which ex- extends out of most of the mammals, except perhaps dolphins, and they've only got flippers, so they can't do books. We need to know what's going on in order to, to structure our lives around that, because we've got language and social sociability and complex social behaviours and, and hierarchies and, and tax to pay and, and property to divide up and all this sort of complex stuff that happens when you stop becoming a hunter-gatherer and settle in communities. One of the ironies between Dylan and Lennon is the fact that although both were really well-read, as I was arguing earlier in terms of their love of history, it's the fact that they they both read really dumb books 
uh, won the late great planet Earth, which was a massive bestseller in the in the early 70s. That's that's probably why Dylan got into evangelical Christianity. Because if you read the late great planet Earth in 1975 and you think the world's coming to end within the next decade, and and then you hit a bit of a spiritual war yourself, and if you believe that that book, then you're gonna it makes perfect sense to join an evangelical end of the world type church. And Lennon did the same with the book that he read, The Passover Plot, the book he read immediately, well, the book that was on his shelf when he was interviewed by Maureen Cleave from the Evening Standard. And she said he's clearly well read on the Bible. And I reckon she saw one book. I reckon she saw a copy of The Passover Plot and like, oh, yeah, he's clearly well read on the Bible. It was, that was probably it. And off the back of that, you know he's read that book because of the quote, which is, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. It's his, it's his disciples that ruin it for me. They're all thick and ordinary. That's literally the, the hypothesis of the Passover plot summed up in a, in a sentence. Lennon read that book and it, and it changed popular music history completely because as a result of that, well, they thought he got shot in Memphis and that's why they, they stopped touring and they retreated into the studio and made Sergeant Peppers, and then Dylan reads like right Planet Earth and becomes a Christian. So, ironically, the two most influential books in the history of popular music are these kind of schlock history texts based on nothing <laughs> that an artist happened to read and, and completely changed the course of their entire career, which is sort of an interesting parallel between them. Why do you think John was so dismissive of? that late 70s Dylan kind of Christian music, Serve Yourself is uh, a biting and one of my, probably one of my favourite John Lennon solo songs in its own way. It, it never got released. I, I'd love to know what Dylan thought of it. I don't know if he's ever commented on it. Um, I, I'd be surprised if he had. Why do you think he was so anti that? Do you think that was, oh, he was very anti that kind of rock establishment in that late 70s period anyway. We know he did that private, diary entry where he slags off Jagger and Dylan and Paul Simon and these people do you think it was tied in with that or do you think he had a real problem with it I think he had a bit of a special relationship with Dylan and that he was such a huge influence on him that he had an interest in in what he was doing and would probably follow it anyway and what what is interesting about his response to to Dylan's conversion is he's also quite even-handed about it whilst whilst everybody else is is very very quick to criticize what I thought were actually quite good albums in a way uh, on reflection. I hate them at the time, but on reflection, listen to them now and they, they do stand up. Unlike sometime in New York City, I think they're, they're great records. He's quite even-handed. Some of his comments are quite positive. Bob's got a right to do what he wants and all that and all that stuff. But it's possibly more privately that, that he's a bit more scathing in his demos. And the interesting thing about Serve Yourself for me is he did so many versions of, of those songs. He did 20 or 30 different versions of them. So he's clearly quite keen on on finding the right way of doing it or maybe he just had a lot of time on his hands <laughs> and a piano and lots of blank tape i think those recordings were quite revealing when they came out and they show that the conflict in him which is he has intense spiritual leanings he was not an atheist he had a strong belief in the supernatural not all under the influence of Yoko, which I think has let his be is shown that's been massively overblown i think a lot of it came from John too. I mean, Yoko might have brought the numerology, but Lennon bought into it and the Egyptology and everything else that they did. He had agency in his own right. And um, uh, I think you have to give him credit for that. He was an intensely intense supernatural thinker. And he, you read his accounts of his childhood and, and, and how he would describe seeing visions and stuff. And I suppose my favorite thing is at the, just at the time Lennon is writing his private songs uh, critiquing Dylan's Christian conversion. They're both denying the evolution of humans from monkeys. So Lucy, ironically named after a Lennon song, has been discovered in 1974, takes the world's media by storm in 75, 6 and 7. The, the so-called missing link, the, 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 the favourite phrase of every young earth creationist is found, we now know that we evolved from monkeys, and that's just at the point where Lennon chooses to say, "Well, that's that's clearly garbage." To quote, "It's garbage. It can't possibly have happened. I don't take, don't believe any of that." He's doing that from a Vedic perspective. I think he he considered his 
faith ultimately to be whilst not organized religion i think you could probably best characterize it as something along that kind of vedic tradition you know it is the world's oldest religious text it's five thousand years old and and he had a long relationship with various organizations that danced in around vedic ideas whether it was transcendental meditation or the Hare krishna movement and philosophically that's where he seems closest aligned with his ideas that if you just think something hard enough change will happen that's what imagine is that's what his letter to the new york times is about you know we had angels watching us over our shoulders we wrote this i'm sure that was yoko's line but lennon allowed it in his handwriting signed underneath it so i think faith-wise he's in that vedic tradition dylan's in the christian tradition he's he's as far as he's concerned the world's seven thousand years old and he's telling everybody that at his concerts and they're all idiots for not seeing the truth so both of them just as we the rest of the world goes all right that's that debate settled we evolved from monkeys both of them go on record vehemently denying human evolution in 77 78 which is i just think a glorious irony of of the whole thing and shows that whatever he thought of dylan's particular path spiritually in organized religion which he clearly wasn't a fan of he was essentially in the same mindset himself Hmm. just in a different camp Hmm. so to conclude our conversation john i think it's interesting to look at one of the things you put at the end of the book is that their influence both john and bob continues to endure uh, as you say did did writing the book change your relationship with with either of them How, what was the experience like for you yeah it's an interesting one because i someone once told me if you're going to do a doctorate do it about something you love but realize that at the end of it you'll be you'll have had enough and i still listen i still on my spotify and and i still listen to them both and i still love them and i i feel like i now have a good understanding of them i mean i still listen to the albums obviously along with everything else i listen to get more joy out of the ephemera even if it's underproduced like that the the recording of the memphis gig just fascinated me and there are various versions of that there are snippets of it and then somebody's on youtube collated as much as they can of those american dates and it's in there and it's it's more or less time stamped so you can work out what's at what point what song or what set and uh, that stuff around the edges, I just don't think that ever ceases to be interesting. And then I might not listen to Revolver for six months and then I put it back on and I'm like, yeah, why have I not listened to this for six months? So it's changed it in that way. Whereas previously I would just, you know, listen to my favourite albums over and over, back to back, trying to absorb it. And um, now it's more that it's, it's, it's the stuff around the edges that I'm just forever, whenever any... I mean, my favourite is the um, snatch of footage, which is on YouTube of Lennon discovering what he thinks is a swastika backstage. And I th- it must be their first New York date and um, at Carnegie Hall. It's backstage and there's a big chalk swastika above head height on the wall. Lennon steps out of the elevator, surrounded by press, and stops mid-interview seeing it, points at it, and makes the camera look at the swastika and says, cut, stamp that out. I found that absolutely incredible to see. It's it's still on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen it. It's what an incredible little 10 seconds of film that is. And, um, of course, it wasn't a swastika. It was the the reverse swastika. It was the Hindu symbol. And I I, I love the kind of, I suppose, the context, the light that shines on his relationship to that mid-20th century history, and going over to Hamburg and, you know, throwing up Sikhile salutes to piss off the Germans and doing it uh, in Australia in front of 10 people and on the balcony of the, of the premiere of A Hard Day's Night in front of 10,000 Liverpudlians and you can see Ringo chiding him for doing it. So it's the bits around the edges, I think, that are ever fascinating, which to me tells you about the depth of the subject area that we're dealing with. I mean, the Kinks were a great band. But once you get to a certain level where the Beatles were at culturally, it's so all-encompassing that it becomes, the ephemera just gets more and more interesting because it's so important. Their connections to empire and the backstory to Churchill and all that, the the, the huge irony being that 
in 62, 63, 64, each of those years, six, seven, eight, or nine colonial colonies disestablished themselves from, from the empire. And just at that point, that's when the Beatles were becoming the, the, the world representatives for the British Empire. So we went from being colonial superpower to pop superpower in four years from 63 to, to, to 67. Just and, and it was the Beatles that, that did that, just as, as everything else was drifting away. Uh, Britain's influence over the world was collapsing. To me, I think that's his, that's really important that that people grasp that. That's probably the most important change that's happened in this country in the post-war era, and that he was right at the heart of all that. Uh, it's I think possibly now gradually slipping in into proper history as as the the sixties generation fall away, and what's left is kind of second generation enthusiasts such as you and I. Maybe it certainly. The impact of what he did uh, is world-changing. And there are a few individuals, particularly in the creative arts, that changed the world. I mean, he's tried to stop a war. If it's true that the American perception of Vietnam is re- it was the home front, the end of the Vietnam War, then John and Yoko's efforts, as much as they were derided in 69-70, did as much as anything else to achieve that. Culturally, John and Yoko... Who in popular music has had an impact like that? Absolutely. Well, it's been great fun chatting, John. The, the book is Dylan Lennon, Marks and God. John Stewart, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Hopefully it's made sense. 